0: Homeward is committed to partnering with parents and equipping you with the resources you need to raise your kids to become responsible adults. And Steadfast Companies, a leading real estate investment company, is proud to partner with Homeward to bring you the following podcast presentation. I believe in God. I don't really have no clue.
1: If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. Oh, how I wish I could believe
0: her understand now.
2: I'm Jim Burns. Well, when it comes to kids and spirituality, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that kids today are more interested in spiritual issues than ever before, and I'm totally encouraged by the number of teens and preteens who are completely on fire in their commitment to Christ. Now, I mentioned there was a bit of bad news also, but it's nothing we as parents can't address because it stems from the fact that a lot of kids today are so familiar with the church and what they've heard about Christianity that they just don't always have the tools to explain or defend their faith. Well, during the next half hour, Lee Strobel will join me for a conversation about making the case for Christ. It's a lesson that's crucial for us as
0: parents to pass on to our children. So keep it right here on Home. Homeward with Jim Burns is a production of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University.
2: Welcome to Homeward. I'm Jim Burns. Today, Lee Strobel, one of America's finest communicators, in my humble opinion, a journalist for 14 years, former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, host of PAX TV's Faith Under Fire, lives here in California with his wife, Leslie Thank you for being on the show. Hi, Jim. My pleasure. We're talking about the wonderful book, The Case for Christ, and actually I want to say it was one of the best books I've ever read on, on really the evidence of Jesus oh, Christ thanks. being the Son of God. Mm. And it's a book that I have passed out to loads of people. You've sold over 2 million copies, so there are a lot of people who have, who have read this, and today we're going to talk about that. In many ways, the Gospels can withstand critical investigation. That's what happened sure. in your life. Absolutely. Uh, and, and yet, I want to go all the way back. As a young child, you were not... Necessarily a believer. In fact, at age right. fourteen, you were what you'd call an atheist. That's Talk right. About
1: that. Yeah, my parents believed in God, but and certainly encouraged me along uh, those lines. But a couple things happened to me. First of all, when I was in junior high school or so, I began to ask those embarrassing questions, like, "How can there be a loving God if there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Uh, how could God love us and yet send people to hell and things like that?" And that was seen as rebellion as opposed to a genuine curiosity about spiritual matters. And nobody would answer the questions. Nobody would really engage with me on that. And so I began to think, well, nobody wants to answer these questions because there are no answers. Mm -hmm. And so I began to have doubts. And then when I got into high school, I learned about evolution in uh, biology class. And that pretty much convinced me that, if Darwinism is true, then God's out of a job. You don't need God if Darwinism right. explains the origin and diversity right. of life. And then later, I took a course on the historical Jesus from an atheist. And uh, he convinced me, well, you can't trust the New Testament. You can't trust the Bible. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so since my teenage years, I began considering myself an atheist. And it's interesting. I want to go back to this because as a teenager, you had really healthy questions. Yes. And yet the
2: church wasn't there to answer it. Now, the church is there oftentimes for people. And right. In fact, you even have a student edition of this particular book. Right. But but in reality, as parents and in the church, we've been afraid to to bring up some of those kind of scarier questions. Aren't yeah,
1: we? And, and we chase people away from faith when we do that. Yeah. First Peter three fifteen says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. And when kids ask questions, instead of seeing that as rebellion or you know trying to you know be a smart mouth kid or something, to really engage with them. And right. you know if you don't know the answer, it's a great opportunity to say, let's investigate it together. Let's right. find the answers. And you go on a little in. A Intellectual journey with your kid. Yeah, that that is, that is so key, and kids sometimes need to, in a healthy way, question and doubt. When they raise that first question, how are people going to respond? They're going to get mad. They're going to get tell you to shut up. They're going to tell you just pray more or just have faith. What are they going to do? And I think when we're willing to say, "Wow." that's a good question. I had that question once. Let me tell you something that helped me, and then talk about it, or say, man, that's such a good question. I never really thought about that that much. You know, let's let's read a book together. Let's investigate it together. I think that engages with young people, and encourages them to say, there are answers to this stuff. Right. No, and I, and I think that's key, and I think for parents, we don't have to have the answers. We can go find yeah. the answers, and, and
2: investigate it together. Now, speaking of investigation, your job, before you're doing what you're doing now, you were working for the Chicago Tribune, right. and, and really, in many ways, as a non-believer, you were investigating all kinds of things, but right. you had an experience where you, you went to West Virginia and yeah. you investigated this uh, thing that was going on in the church. Talk about that.
1: Although I had some wonderful experiences at the Tribune, but uh, I got sent to West Virginia where there were some fundamentalist Christians who were uh, really upset about the textbooks that were being used in the schools there. And there was a big controversy. In fact, there was violence that broke out. There was some bombings. There were some shootings and beatings and things like that. So, of course, they send you. They sent me to, into the midst of this, and I'm an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, And I get plucked down the middle of this. And, and you know, to me, uh, in a way, it sort of affirmed that, uh, well, Christians just get angry. They don't ha- have answers. They just get mad at this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate because uh, there are thinking people who do have answers to these issues. And yet an incredible
2: experience happens. You get married, and and your wife becomes a Christian. I yeah. realize I'm not telling the whole story, but yeah.
1: she becomes a Christian.
2: How, how how did that affect
1: you? Yeah, uh, yeah. she met a friend who um, and developed a great relationship with a woman who had a daughter the same age as our daughter. And uh, they would talk about spiritual matters. His friend was a Christian, brought Leslie, my wife, to church with her. And and my wife sort of did her own journey. And then she came up to me one day and said, Lee, I made a big decision. I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And uh, as an atheist, that was like the worst possible news I could get. I mean, I thought this was the end of our marriage. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude, you know, who's going <laughs> to spend all her time serving the poor in a soup kitchen somewhere. And I, I thought, this is it. Our marriage is over. And in truth, it was a very difficult time for our marriage. And uh, and yet, I began to see in her positive changes in her values and in her character that were winsome and that were attractive. She would attribute that to God. Of course, I didn't believe in God, so I didn't know what was going on. But then she invited me one day to go to church with her, and I decided I'd go, You know, get her out of this cult that she got involved in, and uh, went to Willow Creek uh, Church in Chicago and heard a message called Basic Christianity, which spelled out the gospel. And for the first time, here I am, I'm in my late 20s, I'm an investigative uh, legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and uh, I'm hearing this uh, explanation of Christianity in a way I could understand it. And a light bulb went on. And I said, oh, that's what Christians believe. And I walked out saying two things. First of all, well, I don't believe it. I'm not a Christian yet. I I have my doubts and, and so forth. But secondly, I realized if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I decided to use my journalism training and legal training and systematically investigate, is there any credibility Either Christianity or any other faith system. And that's what I embarked upon, a two year investigation that I've written about and sort of reconstructed and, and, and updated for my books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and The Case for Creator. Well, in many ways, and when I first started reading the book, The Case
2: for Christ, it was obviously the first one, the first one I read, I, I thought, how incredible. Because as a as an investigative journalist, you didn't just say, you know what, I'm gonna believe this or that. You yeah. actually really went underneath and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna get at the hard questions, and yet you found people who could give you some answers
1: that that made sense to you. I did, and and one of the most fascinating things I discovered is that there are brilliant people out there who have a lot of information, who love talking about this stuff. I know when I was doing the book, and I would call up some of the great scholars in America, Bruce Metzger of Princeton, uh, Professor Emeritus, one of the great experts on the text of the New Testament and so forth. Brilliant people. i call them up and say, hey, can I ask you some Absolutely! Because <laughs> these, these people who spend their lives studying this right. stuff, and so few people want to uh, ask them the kind of questions questions they've been waiting for their whole right. lives, you know? And so I found this investigation to be fascinating. What's fascinating about that is that you actually, as you went to these people, you, you talked to both
2: people who, who, who were believers and followers of Christ, but yeah. also people who weren't yeah. as well. That's right. When you start, and you're talking about these these Christians who who were educated, mm-hmm. w- was that different for you? Did you figure all
1: Christians had pretty much
2: checked their brains out at the door? And...
1: Well, I sort of had the opinion, I think it's an old uh, joke about uh, Sunday school where the kid is asked, what's faith? And he says, faith is believing something even though you know in your heart it can't be true. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of kind of how right. I picture Christians is people who kind of de- compartmentalize their life. They had their intellectual side, but then they had their faith side, and their faith side was contrary to the intellectual side. And they believed things about God and about Jesus Christ that had no intellectual basis, but they were able to uh, sort of compartmentalize the two issues and 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 so they could believe and yet they never questioned it. They never really had a reason to believe. At least that's the way I perceive Christians.
2: To be. So what do you say to the person who says, you know what, I, I just can't believe
1: and buy any of this stuff and I really don't have the time and attention to look at it? Well, I would say um, if this is true, this has huge implications for your life. It is worth taking some time and reading, so that's why I wrote these books, to make it, to sort of take my journey, my investigation, and put them into a, uh, that into an accessible volume so that people could read it. Because if this is true, It has huge implications. It is worth taking some time to check out yourself, to investigate, to ask the tough questions, to get some answers. We're going to spend a lot more time in eternity than we are in this world. And it is worth it in this world to do the study, to come to some conclusions about whether or not Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, Or is he some legend or a person who was merely mythologized later into being the son of God when he was really nothing of the
0: sort? I'm glad that Lee is making this distinction today here on the Homeward Broadcast. And if you're just joining us, Roger Marsh jumping in here to say welcome to the program. And we're broadcasting, as always, from the studios at the Homeward Center for Youth and Family on the campus of Azusa Pacific University, graduating Difference Maker since 1899. You can learn more about the school at apu.edu. But this conversation today, Making the Case for Christ, here we are broadcasting On Christmas Eve, and uh, happy Christmas Eve to you from Jim and uh, all the staff here at Homeward. Talking about this issue of, you know, more and more people are talking about, you know, the war on Christmas and whether or not we should be celebrating Christ at Christmas and what the whole issue is. It's amazing how many people will just dismiss this holiday and say, well, it's a myth. The end. And there's so much evidence to the contrary. That's why we have Lee's uh, book up on our Homeward website. If you want to get the copy of this audio, uh, we'll have information on how you can do that at the end of the program. But remember, you can make the case for Christ. You can make the case for Christ, especially at Christmas. And uh, we've got some resources for you at Homeward.com. Okay, now the conclusion of today's program. Here once again, Dr. Jim Burns.
2: Welcome back to Homeward. I'm Jim Burns. Today, Lee Strobel, and I'm smiling because I love the kind of conversation. I love his power and his energy. Just saw him last week as the host of PAX TV's Faith Under Fire. It's a great program. If you haven't seen that, look in your television directory and find out how and uh, where you can get a hold of that incredible program. What has it been like in Faith Under Fire watching the show just last week? You had uh, one woman who believed and one woman who didn't necessarily believe, and there's kind of this debate. That that must be uh, really fun for you to have that kind of interaction. It
1: really is, because the theme of our show is I don't care what you believe, I want to know why you believe it. So we have on atheists and agnostics and Christians and Muslims and Hindus and New Agers and so forth, debating some of the most provocative issues. Is Jesus the son of God or is he just uh, a prophet, as the Muslims believe? What about the resurrection? What about the Messianic prophecies? What about social issues like the war in Iraq? Is that moral or stem cell research or things like that? And so we generally have on an evangelical Christian with a skeptic. And it's been fascinating for me to watch time after time after time when we get some very highly educated non believers in and yet we have very articulate Christians. Yeah. How many times the Christian is able to really present evidence that cannot be refuted by the skeptical guest? Uh, we're still kind of talking about
2: your story. And mm-hmm. by the way, you haven't become a Christian yet in this yeah. uh, in this conversation. <laughs> and one of the things you started examining for
1: your book, The Case for Christ, was you started delving into the biographies of Jesus.
2: Talk yes. about that for
1: a minute. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the key issues is whether or not we can trust the four Gospels in the Bible as being reliable historical documents. What the, what the things they tell us about Jesus, are those true or not? Anybody can claim to be the son of God. Uh, When I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune and I would go to mental hospitals and other places, I would run into all kinds of crackpots who would tell me they're God. I knew they weren't. Why? Because there was no other corroborating evidence. Right. And so I wanted to know, in the case of Jesus, did he claim to be the Son of God, and did he prove it by returning from the dead? That's really the big, big issue. And so are the Gospels, uh, the biographies of Jesus, reliable? And I investigated that very thoroughly, interviewed uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg, Ph.D., author of several books on the reliability of the Gospels, an internationally known expert on this issue, uh, did a lot of research on it. And my conclusion is that they are trustworthy, that they are based either on direct or indirect eyewitness accounts, and that what they tell us about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus— Can be trusted. In your book, you talked about eight tests, and I don't know that we have time to go through all eight of the tests, Mm -hmm. but work through a couple of those tests. Yeah, I mean, one of the things as a journalist I try to do is is take uh, evidence and test it, and sort of cross-examine it. For instance, the intention test. Did the disciples have the intention of recording accurately what took place? And they certainly did. In fact, if you look in the case of Luke, Luke was um, sort of a first-century investigative reporter. He was best friends with the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, and he specifically spells out, he says it at the beginning, he says, look, I investigated this stuff thoroughly. I, I went to the original sources. I checked this stuff out to present a, an orderly and an accurate account about what took place. So he makes the claim anyway that he's not making up mythology, but he's reporting actual truth. Give me one more. Uh, the ability test. Uh, did the followers of Jesus have the ability to uh, report accurately uh, uh, what took place? And, you know, as you look at their lives, what they intended to do, what was their intention and so forth, what you find is that um, they were interested not in preserving fables and stories and make-believe, but getting down to the root about what really took place with Jesus. They were on the scene, or they, uh, in the case of uh, Mark, he was the uh, companion of Peter who was on the in the inner circle of Jesus. So you have information coming from very reliable sources and passed along before it was written down, but in a way that preserved the accuracy of the Gospels. Now, as you're doing this study, your wife is watching you.
2: And yeah. at this point, you're not necessarily saying, I believe this stuff. You're right. just kind of investigating it. What, what was she thinking at the time? Y-
1: she was, uh, I didn't know how much she was praying for me at the time, but she had all kinds of people praying for me as I was in this process. But, you know, she was encouraged because she knew that if I would take seriously the claims of Jesus, if I would spend the time delving into the historical record, if I would look at archaeology, if I would look at ancient history, then she was pretty confident that I would find that the Gospels represent the accurate account of what took place in the life of Jesus.
2: Yet at the same time, there was an atheist, Jeffrey Lauder, who asserted that you really didn't engage in contemporary critics of uh, evangelical Christian apologetics. How, how do you respond to, to his critique? of
1: you know? Yeah, I mean, I just disagree with that because what I did in my book is I dealt with the questions that I had as an investigative reporter, as a spiritual seeker, as a doubter, as a skeptic, as an atheist. And I went in and I investigated those questions that I had, but I also did a lot of reading about contemporary uh, atheism and tried to present many of those objections, the ones that I thought made sense. Many of them I I didn't think made sense, but the ones I thought made sense, I would present to these scholars. And you can see that in the book because I footnote it. Uh, For instance, uh, Michael Martin, who's an atheist uh, from Boston, I often quoted him in the book to say, well, here's what an atheist says. This is his claim. And then I put that to the test by allowing the Christian scholar to respond to that. And then I leave it up to the reader. You decide for yourself whether or not this answer makes sense. And that does make sense. And, and yet again, it's kind of scary. I'm thinking about your wife and I'm thinking,
2: she's thinking, gosh, I, I wish she'd spend more time with the Christian people <laughs> than these, you know, than these uh, people who don't believe. But what do you say to the wife or to the husband who, who has an unbelieving yeah. wife or husband, or maybe
1: one of their kids or are really at a place where they're asking all these questions. My wife and I wrote a book called Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage. Uh, what do you do when you're a Christian and your spouse is not a believer? And that's a very big issue. And and, right. and the kids, as you as you mentioned, many times they go away to school and uh, take a couple of courses and, and then all of a sudden they're confused and not sure what to believe. You know, when that happens, I think of John the Baptist. Uh, if anybody knew the identity of Jesus, if anybody should have been absolutely rock sure about who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist. He's the one that pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, He pointed to Jesus at one point and says, I've seen and I testify this is the Son of God. And yet what happens? He gets arrested and tough times happen. Um, He's isolated. And he begins to have doubts. He begins to have questions. Well, what what does he do? Does he just wallow in those doubts and questions? No. He gets some of his friends together says, go and track Jesus down and ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Or are we to wait for somebody else? So they do. They track Jesus down and say, Jesus is really embarrassing. You know, John, he's been arrested. Now he's got doubts. Now he's got questions. You know, could you just clarify for us, are you the one we've been waiting for? Or are we to wait for somebody else? Now, it's interesting how Jesus reacts there. Does Jesus get mad? Does Jesus say, how dare John raise a question about me? Does Jesus slam dunk John and say he has no place anymore in the kingdom of God because he dared raise a question? No. Jesus says, look, go back and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, uh, the lame are healed, uh, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Go and tell him what you have seen with your own eyes, the miracles that establish that I am who I claim to be, the son of God. And so they go back and they tell John. Now, How did Jesus handle this situation? He did not blow up. He did not get angry. He did not discount John, but he provided the evidence that could help John to reach the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And I I think that's important because as kids come back from college or as they come back from high school even, Or come back from reading the Internet. There's all kinds of junk on there, just historically ridiculous material uh, from atheists on there. And and kids are going to come back, and they're going to say, Gosh, Mom, I was taught so-and-so in in, in Sunday school, and now these people say such-and-such. And, and man, I I don't know what to believe anymore. That is a critical moment. We need to react like Jesus did. Not to get defensive, not to blow up, not to slam-dunk our kids, not to see that as a sign of rebellion, but to say, Well... Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the facts. Let's read some things together. Let's read some books. Let's investigate this and get to the bottom of it. Because I'm convinced that doubts are okay as long as we use them to propel us toward getting the truth. Hmm.
2: Great, great input. Well, we're out of time. We're going to wait till next time to find out if you actually did make this commitment to
1: Christ.
2: <laughs> um, I'm going to close up talking a little bit more about the case for Christ. But,
0: uh, Lee, you'll come back next time and we can finish this conversation. Fantastic. All right, and that concludes part one of Dr. Jim Burns' two part conversation with best selling author Lee Strobel here on the Homeward Broadcast. Making the case for Christ, it's something we, we typically do right around Christmas time, just about every year. These are uh, conversations that Jim recorded with Lee many years ago, but uh, they, they're timeless. They're evergreen, as we say in the broadcasting world, because of the fact that uh, this is <laughs> it's such an important part of our, our Christian faith, and especially here on Christmas Eve. We're grateful that you have been able to tune in. If you'd like an audio CD of the broadcast, just drop us a line at uh, right to P.O. Box 1600, San Juan Capistrano, California, zip code 92693. Ben will send you a copy of the CD as our way of thanking you for your gift of any amount in support of Homeward today. Well, my thanks again to Lee Strobel for
2: his time here in studio today. We've been discussing making the case for Christ. It is such an important, important issue for us as Christ followers, but it's even more essential for us as parents to be able to pass this love for God to our kids as well. Passing the legacy of faith to the next generation is one of the primary concerns of each of us as parents. But we have to remember that our kids are still growing up in an amoral culture, so they're not going to be so easily led to believe in Christ in this culture at this time. Well, they're looking for experiences with God before faith will become real to them. So I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts for helping them have more of a mind for spirituality. First... Children see, children do. You've got to live out your faith in front of your kids. You do not have to be perfect. The more your kids see you living out your faith, well, the more real it will become to them. So remember again, children see, children do. Second tip, don't limit your conversations on spiritual matters to Sunday mornings. I mean, don't get caught in the trap of compartmentalizing faith issues to certain days or certain times of the week with your family, like just Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whenever. It is a part of everyday issues. Let your kids know that the Spiritual issues are important in your life all the time. Like it says in Deuteronomy 6, talk about them when you lie down and when you rise up. Make spiritual issues like Christ and the church an ongoing discussion in your home. Don't preach at them, but just make it a part of the conversation. Third tip for communicating Christ to your kids is be yourself. You don't need a seminary degree to talk to your kids about God. You don't have to speak to them in some holier-than-thou language to send a message that you want to talk about spiritual issues. In fact, if you do, your kids will think you're weird. So be yourself. Share your understanding of who God is and why God matters to you in a way that reflects the real you. That's called authenticity. Well, that's just a few ways that you can help your kids start experiencing a relationship with Christ. And here's
0: Roger with more about a helpful tool for you. Well, the helpful tool is Lee Strobel's book or I should say Lee Strobel's books, because you've got Making the Case for Christ, Making the Case for Creator, Making the Case for Christmas, Making the Case for Easter. I mean, everything that Lee's written about this topic is so very, very important and we recommend all of them. Any book written by Lee Strobel gets the Jim Burns two thumbs up seal of approval. And you can learn more about Lee's writings at home, wor uh, Jim Jim's seal of approval. Jim, you know, we have four core values here at this ministry that we don't always talk that much about. Uh, Christmas Eve seems like a good time to discuss it. Why don't you take the time to do that? Absolutely, and we hardly
2: ever Talk about this, Roger. And here at the end of the year, we're going to start having conversations a little bit about these. But uh, strong marriages, confident parents, empowered kids, and healthy leaders. And that's exactly what we do and who we're about. And those are our values. You know, it's so important at Homeward, uh, we have to raise our money each year. And at the end of the year, we're hoping for people to give us a year in donation. But it's so important for Homeward to try to help strong marriages. And it's so important for us to build confident parents. It's, you know, we always talk about that being oxymoron. But when you give parents skills and abilities and strategies, and that's exactly what we're doing here on the broadcast, as well as all the other things that we do. And then empowered kids, you know, a lot of people may not know that because they think of us as a radio ministry— but we are empowering kids. We do student leadership events. Uh, we write for kids. Both Doug Fields and I do that. We've got the Purity Code where we're helping kids make you know, good decisions about their healthy sexuality. It's being used all over the country. And then healthy leaders. One of the privileges that I have, I, I'm, I don't think I'm old, but as I'm getting older, um, I think one of the real important things that we do at Homeward, especially in my life, is, is build into leaders to help them become healthy. A lot of the leaders today are not as healthy. They're running their lives at too crazy of a pace, and they've got all the same problems that uh, we're doing and they're not people who uh, sometimes know where to get help. And so Homeward is a place where they can get that help. Now, what I would love for our listeners to do is consider a year-end gift to Homeward. It can be large, it can be small. But what it does is it takes a number of people to help make the broadcast go, as well as the other great ministries that we're doing. And so, again, it's toward the end of the year, and we're asking you to consider sending in a a, a year-end gift. You can go
0: online, you can send it in. Well, I'll let you tell them. Okay, well, it's very easy to do when you give a gift online. Let's focus on that right now. HomeWORD.com. It's the most cost-effective way for you, expedient, because the gift happens right then and there. And also, please know that our website is secure. No one's going to hack the information. It's not going to break down like government websites do. It's actually going to work. So give a gift online at HomeWORD.com. And now for Dr. Jim Burns, our engineer, Ben Camp, and the rest of the staff, I'm Roger Marsh. Thanks so much for listening. Join us again next time for another edition of Homeward, and Merry Christmas from our family to yours. Homeward with Jim Burns is a production of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University.